0: Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, with all the latest mental health-related news, and it's including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make media reports make better sense when they're talking about exaggerated claims of the research into potential new treatments for mental illness and finding more insights into the causes of it, as well as reducing the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing a treatment for it, along with better informing the general public about mental health issues, all that delivered to you. ...without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Welcome again. This is the April the 8th, 2015 edition of Psychiatry Today. And, of course, last week on the podcast we talked a lot about the Germanwings Flight 9525 co-pilot who... Brought 150 people to a fiery death along with himself in a murder-suicide. Um, it's it's odd. Um, I don't hear it referred to as a murder-suicide in the media, but let's face it, that's what it was. And uh, you know, I don't think it's exaggerating or being sensationalistic to label it what it was. Uh since I've reported to you about it last time, since last week's podcast was recorded, a little more has come to light. We now know that the co-pilot who committed this act had been diagnosed and treated for a depression in the past. And uh, one notation from his medical record has leaked out. Uh, I dare say inappropriately, even under the circumstances, but that he had, quote-unquote, suicidal tendencies. Now, this begs the question, well, if Lufthansa knew this, Lufthansa the uh, parent airline to Germanwings, if they knew this about this guy, then how could they possibly let him fly? Well, you know, we don't know all the details, and maybe we will, maybe we won't. Uh, for all I know, between the time I report this podcast and when it comes on the air, we'll know more details. But in any case, from what we know, they did check him thoroughly and examine him to make sure that he was fit to fly. Now, he did hide some things, and he apparently had some doctor's notes telling him he wasn't fit to fly, did not share that with his employer Again, begging the question, well, why wasn't he monitored more closely? Uh, again, if Lufthansa knew this about him, how could they let him get by without less thorough supervision and monitoring? Okay, well, these are important questions to ask, and we need to know the answers. If any of us are to feel safe flying, especially Uh, in Europe until the uh, universal adoption of uh, the rule that always two people in the cockpit at all times. Uh, But in any case, I think as as grievous um, an error that may have been made in judgment here, we have to look at all sides of the issue. If an airline were to say, all right, well, you've been diagnosed with depression, and you've even uh, been had suicidal tendencies, so you can't fly. Well, what effect is that going to have? I'll tell you, it's going to chill the effect of pilots wanting to be honest about the problems they're having and get help for them. This is the problem with the whole system to begin with. Uh, it's skewed in favor of pilots keeping serious mental health problems to themselves, not sharing them with their employer, not reaching out and asking for help or getting help uh, because uh, rightfully so they fear that their career will be grounded um, and they will lose their license to fly. Um, So I think in a case like this, what should have happened And hopefully some reforms will now be put into place to make it happen this way instead of what did happen, which is that, okay, we've identified uh, that an otherwise skilled pilot and excellent employee is suffering from an illness that uh, at times makes him feel uh, a danger to himself or others. Uh, We need to make every effort to restore this person to good mental health and they'll be grounded in the interim, but as soon as they're restored to good mental health and thoroughly checked out, they'll be able to fly. And uh while they're grounded, um, maybe they're not going to pay them the full salary, but at least enough to sustain themselves and support themselves while they're getting treatment. Uh, I think, you know, while this may sound like conceding too much, uh, I just don't see any other way to avoid the problem of pilots keeping dangerous behavior and symptoms to themselves. And, and then you have the pilot with this type of illness monitored, uh, not just leave it up to themselves to go get treatment or not and be honest about whether they're getting treatment and what treatment or not. But you say, okay, well, we, we want to make sure you're well, but we also want to make sure the people whose safety you're in charge of when you're flying are well too. So we have to see documentation and be able to communicate with your doctor that not the details of what's discussed during your sessions, but at least to say, okay, how is this person's condition? Uh, is the depression getting better? Are the suicidal tendencies still there, or is that going away as the depression improves? And again, this is part, uh, I think, of what should be a normal program for uh, a pilot being free and comfortable to self-report symptoms of mental health problems such as depression uh, to get the help that they need so that they can be restored and be able to fly, not losing their job, uh, making it more likely they'll be honest. Now, this has to be accompanied by <clears throat> uh, someone else being in the cockpit pit at all times. Um, if you you know, just have one person in the cockpit, then <clears throat> this is uh, a, a basically an open invitation to someone. Who has this type of idea. And, and still, we struggle to fathom like, well, okay, if this man was indeed bent on taking his life, why do it with a commercial airliner and why take out all these other people? Uh, in fact, uh, someone I was talking to not long ago made an excellent point. Uh, this, this co-pilot on this flight, was a glider pilot, if he wanted to, he simply could have taken himself up in a glider and done it that way and not hurt anyone else. Very true, a good point, point. and certainly his behavior belies uh, a tremendous underlying sense of hostility, anger, some sort of vengeful attitude. Uh, for what we don't know and may never know. Uh, but that's usually what triggers suicidal people to act out violently and take others with them before taking their own life. Um, and, you know, along with a sense of anger and getting back at uh, perceived uh, wrongful acts that have been done to them, uh, there's a sense of not Feeling important uh, at all, feeling marginalized to a tremendous degree, and uh, desiring infamy uh, in the afterlife. And I think there even was some media reports about how he had said uh, to his girlfriend before he did this that everyone would know his name afterwards. And uh, you know, this is a common thread. When we look at things like the mass shooters, like someone who goes into a workplace or a shopping mall or just some other public place and uh, unloads several magazines, killing some innocent people, and then taking themselves out before law enforcement have a chance to apprehend them. Um, you know, it's, it's very similar to those types of cases. The only difference here is that the weapon was a commercial airliner as opposed to uh, an automatic rifle or some other firearm. Well, in any case, um, all uh, all I can hope for is that uh, all airlines, not just the Lufthansa and others in Europe, uh, adopt uh, better ways of dealing with pilots' mental health problems. They should feel free to self-report. They should be given adequate but supervised help to monitor their condition closely, uh, restore them to being able to fly, making sure they can still sustain themselves financially while they're getting treatment, uh, and then have a uh, program of supervision and monitoring when they go back into the air. I think while this may sound intrusive and uh, why should people with a mental health problem have to... Subject themselves to this? Well, you know, I actually don't think it's that intrusive. There are certainly other medical problems uh, that would preclude a pilot from flying, and uh, physical condition has to be in top shape as well. So there would have to be monitoring of other health conditions. Also, you hear in the intro to my podcast every week, I talk about reducing the stigma. Right. Well, does what I propose make it worse or, or reduce it? Well, I would argue it reduces it. Okay. Because if you're saying no, we still want you to be able to fly. Uh, we just and we want to take care of you, and we want you to still work for our airline and be able to take care of our passengers. But we have to look out for your health first. It will actually destigmatize pilots from being uh, willing to self-report these symptoms. All right, we're going to take a break here. We'll be back with more mental health-related news after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free
1: app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app, the sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store.
2: This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that's individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship with Built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit you'll not be rushed and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com.
1: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction, or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist, Dr. Scott Bay. Next up on tonight's show, we have a military mental health update. Uh, <clears throat> as you know, I've been talking to you in the past few years about the problem of very abnormally high rate of suicides in the military And uh, fortunately, with the notice taken of this issue, the military have studied the issue in greater detail in an attempt to uh, reduce the rate of suicides in the military. And the latest study to come from this effort shows that military suicides aren't linked to deployment. Uh, Military suicides may be more likely after members leave the service than during active duty deployment, particularly if their time in uniform is brief. It was certainly intuitive as the wars went on and suicides went up for people to assume that deployment was the reason. And not only that, but multiple very lengthy deployments and deployments with uh, extended length, but... The data show that it is too simplistic. When you look at the total population, deployment does not seem to be associated with suicide. Now while the United States military has traditionally experienced lower suicide rates than the civilian population, suicides among active duty service members have surged in the past decade almost doubling in the Army and the Marine Corps. To understand the link between deployment and suicide, researchers analyzed military records for more than 3.9 million service members in active or reserve duty in support of the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan at any point from October 7, 2001-2001 to December 31, 2007, a total of 31,962 deaths occurred, including 5,041 suicides by December 31, 2009. Suicide rates were similar regardless of deployment status. There were 1,162 suicides among those who deployed and 3,879 among those who didn't, representing suicide rates per 100,000 person-years of 18.86 and 17.78. Obviously not a, a significant difference, not statistically anyway. Leaving the military significantly increased suicide risk, however, with a suicide rate of 26.06 after separating from the service, compared with 15.12 for those who remained in uniform. Those who left service sooner had a greater risk, with a rate of 48.04 among those who spent less than a year in the military service members with a dishonorable discharge were about twice as likely to commit suicide as those who had an honorable separation. This is the first time such a huge comprehensive study has found an increased suicide risk among those who have separated from service, particularly if they served for less than four years or had an other-than-honorable discharge. It's possible that pre-deployment examinations might screen out people who have mental health problems, making those who deploy several times a healthier, more resilient group. Now, before we review the rest of the article about this research, let's, let's just take a look at what they found so far. Uh, people who leave the military have a higher rate of suicide after they leave. So why would that be? Well, uh, that makes sense to me on uh, several levels. The military is a highly structured environment. Um, Every minute of every day is accounted for. And providing that tremendous sense of structure... Uh, certainly helps those who have tenuous mental health keep it together, and when you suddenly take all that away and someone is left to fend for themselves, I can certainly see where that would lead someone to decline. And you also take away, when you leave the military, that very, very strong sense of bond and kinship with everyone else in your unit. So uh, you're taking away just a tremendous uh, social support, um, probably the most important one in the person's life. I mean, these are people that you work with every day that uh, your lives uh, potentially could depend on them and vice versa. Uh, so again, you take away that social support and I could certainly see where someone, who, again, who has tenuous mental health to begin with would deteriorate. Now, what about the people who have a very brief period of time in the service. They serve less than four years or just a very, very short time, less than a year, or had an other than honorable discharge. Well, to me that's even easier to figure out. uh, If someone either had their heart set on a career in the military and it didn't work out for them and they weren't able to fulfill that, of course, that's going to be devastating. They may become hopeless and uh, see no future for themselves, or uh, perhaps it wasn't. It was uh, the military being their last resort that they had tried and failed in so many other areas in life, and they hoped that uh, trying to join the military uh, would would help them to at least make something of themselves in life. And then that doesn't work out, and again they're completely devastated and hopeless about their future. You add to that an other than honorable discharge, uh, which is, if you if that's what happens, obviously that's devastating to uh, your future employment. If you know you, you say you were in the military and you got other than an honorable discharge, uh, forget about getting a job. So here again. Uh, You have things like withdrawal of support, uh, lack of structure, lack of social supports, uh, a hopeless future. And uh, it's not hard to see how this would increase the rate of suicides. Now, they also looked at other factors. For example, for those contemplating suicide, access to firearms can exacerbate the problem. Uh, When they don't have access to weapons, they are less likely to kill themselves. We know this is the case in the civilian population as well. When there are lethal means available, uh, it is more likely a suicide will occur. Some service members who leave the military early may have had risk factors for suicide, such as mood disorders like depression or bipolar disorder, or substance abuse problems, that contributed to their separation from the military, particularly if they had a dishonorable discharge. Some of the dishonorable discharges may be related to having a mental health disorder and being unable to keep that behavior in check and breaking the rules. And some of the early separations from the military may be people in distress, who appropriately opted out of service. It isn't realistic to expect former service members to instantly reintegrate into their former civilian lives, but they may be experiencing serious mental health problems if they're not eating or sleeping, or if they're extremely agitated or irritable. The lack of an association between deployment Suicide risk isn't surprising. At a very high level, these findings highlight the need for there to be much closer attention paid to what happens when people leave the military. Uh, but also, I think, screenings pre-deployment uh, would definitely help cut back on the problem. Well, you know, it's, it's very important that the military continue to study this issue and learn as much as they can. This is the only way they're going to reduce the disturbingly high suicide rate among our service members and our veterans of the military. All right, next up on psychiatry today. Did you ever go into another room in the house, and then you get there and you're like, what did I come in here for? Of course you have. All of us do that, myself included. Uh, And quite frankly, we worry about it too much. Um, If you remember, I think it was two years ago or so, that I told you about what I thought was a fascinating study where some psychologists in Canada did some research about this and they determined that the reason we forget what we came into the next room for is because our brain automatically and involuntarily shifts its focus whenever we move from one space to another. And that could be through a doorway. It can be through an archway. Any kind of separation, any kind of physical transition that represents we're no longer in the space in the environment that we were in, we're in a slightly different one. Uh, again, the brain just does this. It's automatic, it's involuntary. And this is why we forget what we came into the room for. And what these researchers proposed as the solution to this is that you rehearse over and over and over in your head either saying it to yourself in your head or actually articulating it and saying it out loud verbally over and over what you went what you're going into the next room for as you move through the doorway the transition whatever it is even if it's multiple ones and that way you'll remember what you were going to the other room for once you get there so none of us have to Invoke the A word, meaning Alzheimer's, when something like that happens. We have to take a commercial break here, but when we come back, I want to tell you about an article uh someone who has some memory-saving devices you may find helpful. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break.
1: All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like.
0: Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctors' Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations
2: amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. And we're talking about someone who says they have the secret to remembering names, lists, and, like I was saying before the break, why you walked into the other room. How many times have you forgotten where you left your cell phone or struggled to remember the name of the person you just met? Short of having a photographic memory or keeping a personal stenographer on hand all times, it can seem impossible to remember everything we need to in life. And it doesn't help that as we get older our memories seem to fade even more. But one man who claims to have a bad natural memory has found a way to remember things so well that he says he can recite back every word in the day's New York Times crossword puzzle from memory. Well, that's a a great accomplishment. Not sure how helpful or useful, useful that is, but anyway... I will bring you this article about his methods, and uh, hopefully you can gain some benefit from them. His name is Barry Reitman, R-E-I-T-M-A-N, and he is the creator of the memory training system called Memory Shock, and he has taught courses on how to improve memory to the New York Police Department, and several colleges in the New York area. His approach is based on two factors focus and picture. You have to focus on what you want to remember and that actually helps develop your natural memory. Then picturing is where it gets wacky and the wackier you visualize something the easier it is to remember. Have trouble remembering names? Or do you frequently forget why you walked into the next room? Reitman has some tips and tricks for remembering. Let's take this first example. Uh, I know I just met you, but what's your name again? Let's say you're at a work function and you are introduced to some important people. But five minutes later... You can't remember if that man you met was named Harry or Paul. Remembering names and faces scares everyone. We are visual animals, so we can see the face of someone and recognize them, but we can only hear the name. So if we could see the name, and not just a name tag, but really see it and attach it to the face, we would remember it. Say you meet a woman whose name is Beatrice. Come up with a word association, for example, beehives, or pick a facial feature, for example, her hair buns, and visualize that image on her face. After meeting three people in a row, stop and review the names before going on to meet new people. Reitman says, if you picture something in an outrageous way, like extra tiny or huge or silly, it makes you remember. You will now see that person's name when you see their face. All right, so uh, associating a picture with someone's name and face and uh, purposely making it outrageous may help you remember their name. There you go. All right, now, how to remember uh, a list in order. Never forget something from your to-do list again. Whether you're at the grocery store or trying to recall everything you have to do that day, remembering lists of things can prove to be challenging. How many times have you gone to the store for a handful of items and inevitably one or more is forgotten? Well, Reitman has two strategies that can help. Now, for trying to recall everything on the list, first, associate silly images of the items you need to remember with a body part that also corresponds to a number. It works like this. Assign every body part a number. So your big toe is number one, your knee is number two, and so on, all the way up the body. Then, assign the image of each thing you need to remember to each numbered body part. So, if going to the jewelry store is the first thing you have on your list of chores, picture a watch on your big toe. That's the part of the body associated with number one. You then move up the body with your list. The second strategy involves linking items on your list. Envision the first item on your list in a silly way and then add on to that image. So, if after the jewelry store you need to buy bird seed, you're going to visualize a watch being worn by a parakeet. If you need to pick up your computer next, Simply link it to the parakeet by picturing something like the bird typing away at a computer. The nice thing about this method is you really only need to remember two items on the list at a time. Now, how to remember where you left your cell phone or keys? Sometimes it seems as if keys have legs, right? Right? Losing your keys, cell phone, or any other item vital to daily life can cause immediate panic and anxiety. You frantically search your home or purse and can't believe you've forgotten where you placed the darn thing. If you're going to drop your keys on the kitchen counter, desk, or hall table, picture dropping them in a glass of milk on the kitchen counter and watch it splatter, By picturing them in an unusual circumstance, it forces you to focus on where you put them and be able to picture it. This works for any object. When you place it down, visualize it doing something outrageous on that spot. You'll never forget where your personal items are ever again. And then... The big one, how to remember why you came into the other room. Why am I here again? It's an all too familiar scenario. You're in your living room when you look at your watch and realize your favorite TV show is coming on. You need your glasses to watch, which are in the kitchen. So you get up to go there, but trip over the dog on your way in. Then you see someone left the milk out on the kitchen counter, so you put it away. At this point, you've completely forgotten why you came into the kitchen in the first place. The key here is not to forget what it is you needed to begin with. Before you even get up to go into the next room, apply the two-part system of focusing and picturing. Stop before you get up, which helps you focus on what you need to remember, and then employ visualization, which makes it easier to remember the important item or task. So for this scenario, with the glasses, stay put in your seat for a moment before you even get up to retrieve them in the other room. Instead, take your glasses in your mind's eye. Put them in the microwave And watch them burst into flames or melt. No matter what happens to throw you off, you'll see the microwave and remember, you came in for your glasses instantly. So says, again, Barry Reitman, the author of Memory Shock, training system for memory. And while it may sound a little silly and outrageous, that seems to be the key to his method. That you focus on what you're trying to remember, that you come up with some sort of silly or outrageous association with the thing you're trying to remember. And that silliness or outrageousness uh, makes it easier for you to keep it in your mind. So there you go. I mean the method may not sound like it would work for you personally, but there may be a lot of people for whom... That makes sense, and they may want to try it, and they may have some success with it. Uh, He obviously has had some success sharing his method with lots of groups. If the nearer police department have taken his method seriously, that that certainly tells you something. So there you go. Hopefully uh, those tricks and tips for remembering will help you too. All right, next up. On tonight's show, we're going to stick with the idea of things that will improve memory and talk about the power nap. That's right. The power nap, you know what I'm talking about. This is where you take a brief little snooze at some point during the day when it's quiet. You have Nothing else pressing going on. You have a little bit of a break and uh, feeling a little bit sleepy. So you steal a little nap, 15 minutes, 20, 30, perhaps even 45. Well, uh, maybe you've at times felt guilty or bad about doing that, or maybe you've just realized that you've come to depend on doing that and don't think you could function without being able to do it. Well, No worries, because, you know, for one thing, I've always thought that that was a healthful, good idea, and many, many experts have. And uh, now we see a study that shows that power naps can produce a significant improvement in memory performance. How about that? So, definitely, in praise of the power nap are these neuropsychologists, and uh, let's take a look at what they found. So this team of researchers have shown that a short nap, and in their case it was about an hour, okay, short nap lasting about an hour, can significantly improve memory performance. The study involved examination of memory recall in 41 participants. The volunteers had to learn single words and word pairs. Once the learning phase was over, they were tested to see how much they remembered. Half of them were allowed to sleep while the others watched a DVD. And then they were retested. Those who took a nap retained more word pairs in their memory than those who had just watched a DVD and stayed awake. We'll talk more about this study. When we come back from our next commercial break, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back.
2: This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state of the art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left, who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's web radio.
0: Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctors' Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz,
2: every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, and all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about some research into how power naps help with memory. Now, for those of you who are interested in the study, it was published in the journal Neurobiology of Learning and Memory. Generations of school students have gone to bed the night before exams or tests with their books or notes tucked under their pillow in the hope that the knowledge would somehow be magically transferred into their brains while they slept. That they were not completely taken in by a superstitious belief has now been demonstrated by a team of neuropsychologists who have shown that even a brief sleep can significantly improve retention of learned material in memory. Now, To me, this expands on other research that's been done years ago which shows that students who do a brief review of material and get a good night's sleep the night before a test do much better on the test than students who are just as bright, but stay up all night studying and don't get a good night's sleep. Now, the research examines how power naps influence memory performance. And the results are clear. Even a short sleep, uh, which they consider 45 to 60 minutes, produces a five-fold improvement in information retrieval from memory. Strictly speaking, memory performance did not improve in the nap group relative to the levels measured immediately after the learning phase, but they did remain constant. The control group, whose members watched DVDs while the other group slept, performed significantly worse than the nap group when it came to remembering the word pairs. The memory performance of the participants who had a power nap was just as good as it was before sleeping, that is, immediately after completing the learning phase. The researchers were particularly focused on the role of one specific region of the brain called the hippocampus, It's a region of the brain in which memories are consolidated. Now, consolidation of memory is the process by which previously learned information is transferred into long-term memory storage. They examined a particular type of brain activity known as sleep spindles. This is something that you see on an EEG, an electroencephalogram, when you're monitoring that when someone's asleep. Uh, This plays an important role in memory consolidation during sleep. A sleep spindle is a short burst of rapid oscillations in the EEG. Certain types of memory content, particularly information that was previously tagged, is preferentially consolidated in this type of brain activity newly learned information is effectively given a label making it easier to recall that information at some later time in short a person's memory of something is stronger the greater the number of sleep spindles appearing in the EEG so therefore that's how getting some sleep helps consolidate memory Now, in order to exclude the possibility that the research subjects only recall the learned items due to a feeling of familiarity, the researchers used the following trick. The test subjects were required to learn not only 90 single words, but also 120 word pairs, where the word pairs were essentially meaningless. A word pair, for example, might be milk taxi. Familiarity is of no use here when participants try to remember this word pair because they have never heard this particular word combination before and it is essentially without meaning. They therefore need to access the specific memory of the corresponding episode in the hippocampus. The research teams draw a clear conclusion from its study. A short nap at the office or in school is enough to significantly improve learning success. When it, Wherever people are in a learning environment, we should think seriously about the positive effects of sleep. Enhancing information recall through sleeping doesn't require us to stuff bulky books under our pillow. A concentrated period of learning followed by a short, relaxing sleep is all that's needed. So there you have it in praise of the power nap. Uh, those of you who already have adopted this very healthful habit uh, may want to take this information and now if there is important information that you need to remember such as, for example, not just taking a test, but uh, maybe you have some information you're going to have to be called upon to review at a meeting. Uh, go over that information and then go ahead and take your power nap and you'll remember it better. Alright, now let's look at another issue related to sleep. And uh, Those of you who suffer from frequent nightmares want to listen up or those of you who know someone who does because <clears throat> it turns out that a new study suggests that symptoms of depression and insomnia are the strongest predictors of having frequent nightmares. And This comes to us from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the results are published in the April issue of the journal Sleep. The study showed that 3.9% of participants reported having frequent nightmares during the the previous 30 days, including 4.8% of women and 2.9% of men. Frequent nightmares were reported by 28.4% of participants with severe depressive symptoms and 17.1% of those with frequent insomnia. Further analysis that adjusted for potential confounders found that the strongest independent risk factors for nightmares were insomnia, exhaustion, and the depressive symptom of negative attitude towards self. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine reports that nightmares, which are vivid, realistic, and disturbing dreams, typically involving threats to survival or security, which often evoke emotions of anxiety, fear, or terror, uh, may occur during a nightmare disorder, in which repeated nightmares cause distress or impairment in social or occupational functioning. The study analyzed data from two independent cross-sectional surveys of the Finnish general adult population conducted between 2007 and 2012. The participants were 13,922 adults between the ages of 25 and 74. 53% were women. The surveys involved a questionnaire that was mailed to the participants and a health examination at the local primary health care center where the completed questionnaire was returned and checked by a nurse. Occasional nightmares in the past 30 days were reported by more than 45% of participants and 50.6% reported no nightmares at all. It might be possible that nightmares could function As early indicators of onset of depression and therefore have previously untapped diagnostic value. So, there you have it. At least some insights into some risk factors for nightmares. Um, The article doesn't draw the conclusions, but the obvious implication here is that if depression and insomnia are successfully treated, then that would decrease. Uh, the incidence of nightmares. Now, melatonin is often used. It's an over-the-counter sleep aid, but it doesn't always work, and here's why. Uh, According to this article, when you get tired at the end of the day, a hectic schedule, grueling workout, surely play a role in helping you wind down for the night, but so do the natural biological processes occurring within your body. When the sun sets, you begin to produce the sleep-inducing hormone, melatonin. That's right. Melatonin is a hormone your body produces, which tells your body it's time for bed. And in the ideal world, you fall asleep because of that cue. But some nights, it just doesn't pan out like that. And in a day and age of foregoing the process in lieu of the natural, a melatonin supplement seems like a no-brainer for a better night's rest. After all, Your body already produces it, so it's certain to help you snooze, right? Well, yes and no. In some circumstances, a small dose of melatonin, 1 to 3 milligrams, can boost your sleep quality. A new study in the journal Critical Care found that in a simulated intensive care unit environment, people who were given a milligram woke up fewer times, had improved sleep quality, lower anxiety, and... Increased REM sleep compared with those who only used an eye mask and earplugs. But experts caution against broadening the results. One said, I don't think melatonin helps promote better sleep in general. But if you're in an environment that's hectic, you can use it to create a situation where the small bits and pieces of sleep you're getting are more effective for your brain. You can create a better sleep environment. Now, situations that will qualify if you have very unusual, difficult work hours, if you're crisscrossing the country throughout different time zones, if you're in the hospital or the ICU where sleep conditions are poor, or if you're staying up a few nights in a row in front of the computer. These situations can confuse your body, messing with your natural melatonin production because of how it distorts the 24-hour clock, your circadian rhythms, and thus hindering your sleep schedule and quality. Uh, So in those particular situations, melatonin may be more helpful, but again, try lower doses. Many things sold over the counter are much higher doses than that. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to wrap up tonight's show I hope that you enjoyed hearing this information that I enjoyed bringing to you and found it helpful and informative. And I hope that until we get together next time, you have a wonderful and stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening.
2: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.